Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is the former casting director for one of the largest audiobook production companies in the world, B Audio. Jackie Rosenfeld, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. I am so glad that you had the time. I know that you've uh, had quite a lot of transition lately, and so your time is at a premium. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come in. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Good, good. Well, you, what are you drinking tonight? I am having some, a whiskey and ginger. Whiskey and ginger. Oh, I got to hear about this because those are two of my favorite things. Uh, so what is ginger? Uh, the ginger is ginger ale. Ah, okay. So it's kind of like a, a Kentucky mule. Yeah, but the, the whiskey is Irish. So a, a, oh, no Irish kidding. Kentucky mule. <laughs> That's great. An Irish mule. Okay. Uh, yeah. and, and what kind of Irish whiskey are you using? Uh, I am using is actually a, was a gift from a narrator at B, and it is Powers. No kidding, I've got some Powers. That is good stuff. I just yeah, tried. I, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say I like it. I have not had you know most of the Irish whiskeys I've had. I've had Tellamore Dew and Jameson's, of course. So this was new to me, and I I quite like it. Well, that's good. So clearly, you are familiar with a few different Irish whiskeys. If you want to try a new one. I have a recommendation okay. for you. Uh, a friend of mine got me a little tasting box, and one of them was an Irish whiskey that I had heard of, but I hadn't tried before. And I tasted it. And I thought, wow, this is really different, and it's different in a good way. And the name of it is Writer's Tears. And for anybody dealing with books of any kind, it seemed like a good name for a whiskey. So yeah. I got a bottle, and I really, really like it. I think it's one of the more... Um, complex Irish whiskeys that I've had, and I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Oh, well, I'm going to have to find that. Yeah, good stuff. So, uh, so that sounds good. Um, I, my wife is a fan of Moscow Mules, and we've tried all kinds of different ginger beers and uh, have found a couple that we really like. Uh, I've not done one for her with whiskey because she just doesn't like the brown liquors. So I uh, haven't, haven't gone that route, but, uh, but that sounds very good. I am joining you take a trip with me back now on the time machine to 1950s suburbia. I'm actually having a Tom Collins. Which, oh, that is my favorite drink. No kidding. I had, it is. I had never made one before. And so I looked it up and of course you can buy Collins mixes, but I always like to do things, you know, how they were originally invented. Oh, same. Yeah. Before, before places came out with all of the high fructose corn syrup, fake mix stuff. And uh, so I looked it up and it's really simple. Gin, lemon, a little bit of sweetener and uh, soda. And so I mixed one up and, uh, and I actually have some old Tom gin right now, which is what you supposedly need for the original type of Tom Collins. And uh, I really like it. I think it's great. Oh, wow. That sounds, I haven't had old Tom before. Well, That's supposedly it's a, yeah, supposedly it's a, so you like all the Irish liquors. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I supposedly it's a little sweeter. The one time that I tasted the old Tom straight, I didn't think it was all that much different, uh, actually twice, but, but 
as I'm having it in this drink, I do think that it is not quite what I would expect from a Hendrix or a Tanqueray or something like that. So, uh, so I'm really enjoying it. Um, and I'm glad that I finally got to take a trip back into, uh, you know, what people were drinking in the suburbs in the, the 1950s and the, the, in the early 60s and the days of the Mad Men era. Oh, yeah, and their fancy cocktail parties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again for coming in. Cheers. Cheers. So, uh, so Jackie, where are you from originally? Well, I was originally born in Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh, far away. I know. My dad was in the Air Force, and so I was born there. But we moved to Texas. I was probably uh, almost four when we moved to Abilene, Texas. Mm. And then that's where I grew up. Quite a culture shock from uh, Hawaii to Texas, I would guess. Yeah, well, it was not, you know, at four, you know, I was just rolling with the punches. But my mom was from Abilene. So they kind of, for her, it was getting to go home. Oh, yeah. So for you as a four-year-old, not a big deal. For her, she probably liked it. Uh, what did your dad think? <laughs> yeah. Well, he liked it too. My dad, he was kind of a man of many places and he was an airplane mechanic. He worked on C-130s in the Air Force and he was really good at what he did. And apparently not very many people liked to be stationed at Dias Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas. Mm -hmm. And so they offered him the opportunity to homestead. Oh. So he got to stay put. So I'm like the only military brat I know that didn't move from the time I was four to 18. Yeah. yeah. Every time I talk to somebody who, whose dad or mom was in the military, it was every two years you're going somewhere new. Yeah. And we didn't go anywhere. So, <laughs> so was that good? Did that feel like it was, uh, did, you, did you feel like you had a nice stable childhood? I did. You know, it had its own idiosyncrasies, but you know, I graduated from high school with people I went to kindergarten with. So oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. So uh, so what did you do after high school? Uh, I immediately went to undergrad. I went to Angelo State University, which is about an hour south of Abilene, and did a bachelor's degree in drama. But it only took me about 10 years to do it. <laughs> that was <on> the <laughs> 10 but I did a few years, and then I dropped out for a long time. And didn't uh, finish my bachelor's until I was almost 30. Well, so, good for you for going back. What was it that, oh, yeah. uh, that caused you to drop out? <sighs> you know how there's boys. <laughs> I have yeah. heard that sometimes they can get in the way. They get in the way. And I, and I followed him to Alaska, of all places. Wow. So, so after spending such a, such a nice, stable childhood in Abilene, Texas, all of a sudden you're uh, hoofing it to Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, at least I have the two hardest states taken care of. Why <laughs> not? Check, check. But yeah. So yeah. So I lived in Alaska for a few years. And then when I came back, it, I went ahead and went back to school and then uh, went straight into grad school and did an MFA in playwriting from Texas Tech University. Oh, wow. So continuing in theater, but getting away from perform. I assume that the, the drama degree, you were kind of focusing on performance. Oh, but a lot of performance, and I was a stage manager. Oh, okay. So backstage yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of different tasks there. Yeah, I think um, I don't think there is a job in theater that I haven't done. I was even <laughs> a master electrician for a show once. Wow. So, well, that yeah. Is, I I have to say, for the theater that I've done, uh, the more you know about the different jobs, the better off you are doing whatever job it is that you have on that one production. 
Oh, I totally agree. And I also think that it makes you someone who's way more fun to collaborate with. Yeah. Because you, you understand what everybody's doing. Exactly. And what the different challenges are for all the different. Yeah. Groups. Yeah. No, that sounds great. So then you did an F- MFA in playwriting. Uh-huh. That sounds I great. Yeah. And then I've, I've had plays produced around the country and shortly, well, I kind of didn't even take, like, I went right from grad school immediately into teaching and um, I've been teaching at least part-time ever since. Wow. So, yeah. That's, that's a lot of teaching. Yeah. It's about 15, I think I'm finishing up my 15th year of teaching. And, and is all of the teaching in the area of drama? Yes. If we count film in the area of drama, then yes. I teach, oh, sure. at, I teach at a community college in Houston, too. I have some on cl- online classes there, and I teach a film appreciation class. That's, that's great. It's a very different medium, but uh, creativity all around. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's really great to see the way that both industries are the same mm-hmm. and the way they're different. And, you know, and of course, you know, having young students, you know, especially the performers in theater, they all have, you know, a half mind of wondering, you know, do they want to go to New York or do they want to go to L.A.? Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of them try, try it both. So it's good to have some perspective to help them, too. So what has been the focus of the majority of your teaching? Theater appreciation, probably. I work mostly with non-majors in it's sort of like a um, a core class. Mm-hmm. Like they either have to have um, art appreciation, music appreciation, or theater appreciation. Sure. So yeah. I'm with a lot of freshmen, a lot of 18-year-olds in my life, and I quite <laughs> love them. Oh, that's good. So yeah, I kind of my class ends up being a lot about how to be in the audience, how to be a good audience member, and how to be in college. Boy, from my experience being on stage and an audience member. I would think that you could summarize a lot of those classes in one very short lecture. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. Put your phone away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can't tell you how many times I have been annoyed, uh, not because I didn't like the play that I was seeing, but because the audience experience was just so horrible. Agreed. I went and saw a, uh, a production of, uh, it was community theater, but um, I, I love community theater. I think that I've seen some just amazing performances in community theater. So that wasn't a problem. I saw uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and oh. about halfway through the play, uh, but not halfway through at intermission, it was sometime when action was going on on stage. Some woman sitting directly behind me pulled out a bag of potato chips no <laughs> i was horrified i was like i i you know after a couple of seconds wondering what is this crinkling that i'm hearing this is worse than a candy wrapper i turned around and i looked and i thought to myself you have got to be kidding me and um for, yeah fortunately she i think she only had a couple and then put it away but it was just it was the most amazing thing i had ever seen in <laughs> in a theater so Wow. Anyway, that's that's great. I, I think that uh, the appreciation classes are great for the people who aren't in a particular creative study um, that they can, you know, learn more about it. Yeah. I'm sure that a lot of people do it just because it's a core requirement, but hopefully some of those people at least get a better appreciation. Yeah. And every every year or two, I'll have someone make a big switch from, you know, a different major. When I was actually, I'll 
take a moment to brag if it's okay. Oh yeah, sure. When I was at Texas Tech University and I was a graduate student teaching an intro to acting class, I had, I think he was a journalism major in my class and he was just, you know, smart and always part of the discussions. And one for one of the sections, I had the improv troupe on campus come and sort of demonstrate what improv improvisational theater is Mm -hmm. and he liked it so much that he joined the troupe the next semester the next year he changed his major to theater when he graduated he went to second city in chicago and now he's the head writer on the ranch on netflix that is amazing i know (laughs) i love it when my students are more famous than i am (laughs) right from journalism to a head writer on a, a major networks TV show. That, that, is yeah. that is fantastic. Yeah. Well, cool. So then uh, after you got done with uh, your MFA, what happened after that? Well, I, I, that's when I immediately went into teaching and still writing. Um, shortly after I finished my MFA, I had my first show in New York City, and that was really exciting. Your first show um, of a play of yours being produced or something? Yeah, a play yeah. that I wrote was produced in New York. Yeah, I think okay. it's happened about four or five times now. That's great. Yeah. And in the first time, actually, the um, the woman who played the lead in the first production of it in New York in 2007 was this, this at the time, little known actress by the name of Amy Schumer. Oh, wow. So, I know. It's like, well, we were both nobodies then. So now, now she's Amy Schumer. And so. that was only that was only 11 years ago? Yeah. Fantastic. And is she in the, um, I know that for a lot of plays in the first page or two, they talk about the first performances. Was that the first production of that play? Is she actually in the, in the, the uh, beginning of the play now? No, because it was not the first uh, production. If if it ever gets listed where they want the the first New York production, and sometimes uh-huh. that happens, yeah, it would be listed. But the, it was done. It was the play that I wrote for my thesis project. So its oh. first production was at Texas Tech. Got it. Got it. Well, that's very cool. So yeah, you've, you've uh, brushed uh, brushed up alongside some people who are who are big now and doing big things. As as have you. Um, so. Oh, thank you. So, <laughs> so, uh, so you're in the, you're in the um, stage world and you're creating plays and you're still teaching. Uh, where do audiobooks come in? Well, there was this one year that I had a friend of mine that I went to undergraduate with at Angelo State. She is now a big name in anime and her name's Lucy Christian. She's been in like, Full Metal Panic and Appleseed, Princess Tutu, all the crazy ones. Yeah, so um, Lucy Christian was a, 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 is a friend of mine, and I had her come up to Stephen F. Austin State University. She was a guest lecturer for a day and to talk to the students about mic technique and, and perhaps, you know, how to get involved in voice acting. And while she was talking to them, she mentioned her that she had just started working in audiobooks and had just finished narrating her first book and she mentioned something about a proofer and so once you know the the lecture was done and everything she and I were talking I was like so what is a proofer 
And she was like, well, you know, somebody has to listen to the audio books before they're released and, you know, find the errors that are made or if there's background noises and, and that kind of stuff. And I was like, that's a job. It's like a real, people get paid to listen to audio books right. and correct people. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, where do I sign up? And so I, I sent an email that night. She, and this was with B audio that she was did her first books with. And so I reached out to Jennifer Stoke, the executive producer and inquired, and she passed me off onto Judith Cope, who was the head proofer. And I got started almost right away working on, on in that capacity while I was still teaching full time. And then a few months, no, it was maybe about a year later, they approached me and asked if I would be interested in a more a time intensive position. And then uh, James Adams gave me, the owner gave me a call and we had a nice long conversation. And the next thing I knew I was being offered the job as a casting director. Well, that's great. James is great. He was, uh, he was here in the speakeasy back in episode 10 and I, I loved talking to James. Uh, oh, he's fascinating. He is. He, he has done so many different things. Uh, really a fascinating guy. Great word, great, perfect word for him. Fascinating. Um, I have not spoken with Jennifer Stokes yet, but, um, but I want to get back to the proofing. So for a company like B, which is a major audiobook production company, what what were your what was your specific role as a or what were your specific responsibilities as a proofer? Oh, as a proofer, it was to listen to the I you know as the narrators would upload their files, I would download them, and while looking at the text or the script, following along and listening. And so first being aware of were mistakes made in terms of did they skip a line, did they repeat a paragraph, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, there was things that were mispronounced. And especially, you know, when it would come to foreign words or technical words, we always needed to, to verify that they said them correctly. So there was a lot of research done on, on the end of the proof or two to make sure that those were correct and then making notes with the proper phonetic pronunciation if it mm -hmm. wasn't pronounced correctly. All right. So that, that sounds about like what I expected. I wasn't sure about the, the extra stuff like the pronunciation or if it was just following along with the text and making sure that they, they did it. And, and I just want to make sure that everybody, everybody listening has a good sense of when you're at a production company and not just I'm doing it on my own, what is expected when it comes to the proofing. So, um, so that's good to know. And, and you said that was about a year. And then after a year, you, uh, you went into casting. Yes. And what was, when you, when you first started doing casting there, what were your responsibilities then? As books would come in, I would generally have a brief synopsis of them. And Sometimes just from that alone, I could start. Well, I let me back up a bit. The very first thing I needed to do was become well acquainted with our roster mm -hmm. and the actors that we had working for us, so that when books came in, I knew not only who had a good voice for what, but also what kind of background did they have? Because we had stage actors, screen actors, but then we also had librarians and sportscasters and all kind people from all kinds of different backgrounds. So, you know, if I had a book on sports come in, it, I needed to know who the, who the people were who had that vocabulary already. 
you know, because it would it would save time because the proofer wouldn't need to spend so much time making corrections. But also they obviously already had a passion for that subject matter. Yeah, I can see how that would be uh, a big plus is if you know things about people more than just, you know, I'm an audiobook narrator. Uh, if you know something about the background, I'm sure that that's a big help. Absolutely. Yeah, great. And so uh, getting to know the, so you got to know the roster and then uh, a book would come in and then what do you do at that point? Well, I spend some time thinking about um, the book itself and, you know, does it need a male? Does it need a female and a narrator? And sometimes the, um, the producing company or the publishing company would let us know, you know, we need a man for this or we we would like a woman or we want someone who is 18 and a native British narrator but most of the time there weren't any kind of specifications like that so if it were a non-fiction book I would need to look at the subject matter I would also need to find out you know who wrote it was it a man was it a woman where were they from about how old are they because it makes a lot of sense to try to match you know not necessarily exactly what the author sounds like but who they are you know so those kinds of things could be clear And then once I settled on someone who was my top choice, I would make an email and make, uh, make an offer. And then sometimes it would be, you know, a five minute wait and they would respond. And sometimes it would be a five day wait, Mm -hmm. usually not that long. Usually most everybody would get back to me within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And then once they confirmed the, the offer and that they would like to accept, then it went into scheduling. And once it was scheduled, then it would go off to the producers and I was pretty much done. So when you first started doing the, doing the casting, um, was it just you as the casting director or is it more of a casting department and you were one of the people doing something that other people were doing as well? Uh, I was the only one making offers. There we have always had a couple of other people working in casting. Um, We would have somebody who initially when I started, there was a gentleman who would audition people for the roster. And so whether or not you were um, available on our roster to work for us was dependent on someone else. But once you got into the onto the B roster, then I'm the one that would make the decision. Got it. Asked as what and for what projects. So has that changed at all? I know that in, um, you know, the audiobook world, audiobooks continue to just skyrocket in terms of popularity. Um, and so I know that some places have more and more staff when it comes to audiobook production. Uh, not sure if every, every place has, but is, is it still there is just one casting director or has be um, expanded? It was when I left, it was just me. And I left as of August 15th. And I believe at least for now, Jennifer Stoke, again, the, the executive producer, she has taken on, taken over that responsibility. And I'm not sure what their plans going forward are. Okay. Uh, yeah. I was just curious. It just seems like that's a lot. I mean, it just seems like what you've described for a growing industry is uh, a lot to take on. Absolutely. But it's so much fun. I get to work with people like you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's great. I, I love it when I hear people say how much fun they're having and how much they enjoy it. I was just uh, talking to a, a fellow narrator recently, and they were talking with uh, several of us about uh, jobs that they've had. 
and uh, saying, you know, that was the last regular job that I had. And now I'm doing this, uh, this narration thing. And, and somebody asked the question, so, you know, which one was the best? And he looked for a second, like they were crazy and said, Oh, this one, hands down. Absolutely. And so it was so clear that he loved what he's doing now more than any of the other great jobs that he's had. I love hearing stuff like that. Yeah. (laughs) Hearing that you thought that the job was that fun uh, in a position that matters to a whole bunch of us who are out here narrating, that's, uh, that's really good. Oh, no, absolutely. The narrators are, have always been my favorite part of the industry. That's great. That's great. Um, so what were, what were some of the biggest challenge that, challenges that you had in terms of casting? Almost always it was schedules. Oh. You know, trying to, you know, either people, either there wasn't enough work or there was too much work, you know? So either I wasn't be able to keep everybody working or everybody had more than they could manage. And I would say that was probably the, always the bigger problem. If there was a project that had a quick turnaround, you know, and generally Mm. we would, you know, depending on the publisher that we were working with, we would have anywhere between three weeks to six months to get the project turned around. But those shorter duration ones, particularly the ones that were under a month were sometimes very difficult to find the right person who is also available. Got it. Yeah. I, I like the way you put that. The right person who's also available. <laughs> yeah. It's like both of those things are crucial. Yeah. Two very different things that are that are very important. So you said something there when you're working with a publisher and I, I wanted to get this out there. So when we were going back and forth in email, um, I said something about B Audio, uh, blah, 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 uh, audiobook publishing company. And you wrote back and said, just for clarification, B Audio is uh, a producer not a publisher. And I know that sometimes I, I think of those two things um, kind of interchangeably because I know that some of the some of the big companies, Penguin Random House, they do their audiobooks. They're also a, a publisher. And so uh, I kind of use them interchangeably. But, but after you wrote that, I thought, wow, that's really important. So can you, just for clarification for anybody who might be listening, um, talk about the differences between a, an audiobook production company and an audiobook uh, publisher? Absolutely. A lot of times they are both. Probably most of the time they're both. And we see that with HarperCollins and Audible and Hachette, Blackstone, I believe most of them, not only do they produce the audiobooks, but they own the rights to the audiobooks as well. And the audio does not own the rights to the audiobooks. So we are never paid... Um, generally we're not part of the royalties process. Okay. So, uh, so a publisher comes to you and says, it, it, it sounds basically to me like outsourcing. So a publisher says, we've got this audiobook and we need it done. Here it is. Do it. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yes. It's like, yeah. Outsourcing, subcontracting, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and there have definitely been times when we have worked for individuals and have worked for you know, directly for the author, but in those cases, they are still the ones who are holding the rights. Okay, that's good. I just wanted to get that out there because, um, I, like I said, I know that I uh, sometimes use terms interchangeably that shouldn't be used interchangeably, but in certain contexts, it doesn't really matter that much. And um, I was when you wrote that, I thought this is something that is good for. Um, it will be good for a lot of people to hear who might be 
just starting out and uh, want to be able to get the terms right when they're, you know, uh, in oh, especially- intending to talk about something intelligently. <laughs> sure. Especially when they're reaching out for the first time and wanting to make sure. Yeah, exactly. So you said that you are not at B as of August. So uh, what's going on now? What brought that about? I was offered a position at Stephen F. Austin State University teaching full time. And I was just very excited about that. And it hadn't been in the classroom full time in a long time. And really, I, I think of teaching as being one of those things that you either you either love it or you don't do it. You know, and it's definitely I have found to be the calling in my life. When I first went to graduate school, the idea was getting the terminal degree so that I could teach as a means of supporting my playwriting habit. Mm-hmm. And now I feel more like I keep writing plays to support my academic habit, you know, <laughs> so because that helps me, you know, helps along with the the promotion process and all of that. You know, I'm sure we've all heard the publisher perish terminology for academia, which definitely still exists. Thankfully, in the world of the arts, instead of publishing, we can have what they call, quote unquote, creative endeavors. Mm. So my creative endeavors and staying, you know, keeping my foot in the uh, audiobook industry is helping that as well. That's good. So uh, it's so nice to hear that, that you kept teaching the whole time in some way, part time Mm -hmm. while you were doing something else. And, uh, and that you love the job of casting director at B and uh, and yet now you're going to something else and you love it just as much. I do. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that every, I know that I, you know, am envious when I hear of people who, well, I mean, I, I'm loving the narration thing, but uh, I, throughout my life, I have been envious of people who could say that they really love their job. Um, so it's great that you have different things that you've been able to do to uh, be able to manage that. I feel very blessed in that regard. That's cool. That's cool. So uh, for for any narrators out there, what kind of advice do you have? You were casting for, uh, how many years was it that you were casting director at B? Just over five. Five. So that's quite a while. You've seen quite a few audiobooks come through. You've worked with a lot of different narrators. What kind of advice have you uh, stored up over the years in your position as a casting director? You know, I think the best advice I have is to know yourself, know what your talents are, know what your strengths are, but then to also recognize what can you not do and don't worry about that. You know, if dialect work is not a strong point for you, I would recommend taking some classes, you know, getting some lessons and there's some really great people out there. I'll definitely give a shout to PJ Auckland as I think one of the best in the business. Yeah, so, you know, t- take some time to, to, to hone those skills in instead of beating yourself up for not having them, you mm-hmm. know? And, you know, on that same hand, being willing to recognize that I know I was always so proud of narrators when they were offered wonderful books that they knew that they couldn't deliver a great job on for one reason or another when they were honest about it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I just think that's so admirable, you know, because yeah. it keeps their, it keeps their name strong and they're not going to put out a book that doesn't sh- make them shine, you yeah. know? Yeah. I, I always think that's great advice. I know that I've, I've had to do that uh, once or twice now. And one specific one, I worked with this publisher 
um, several times prior to it. And I really, I have a really great relationship with him. And he had another book for me and I thought, great. And I looked at it and I realized within 20 pages, and it was because I don't speak French, uh, don't have any kind of a uh, facility with an accent or a dialect or being able to pronounce things correctly. And it was nonfiction. And there were all kinds of references to people and places. And there was actually a short poem that was in French. And I, I looked at this book and I thought, I can't do this. I, I got to tell him no, because uh, neither one of us is going to be happy with what I come up with. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I don't think most people who don't narrate understand how long it takes to narrate, you mm -hmm. know? So if it's like a, you know, a seven hour runtime on a book that might take 10, 12 hours to record at least. But then if you have the, oh, now I, you know, the research that's oftentimes involved, the yeah. looking up pronunciations. Yeah. And so sometimes it's just, yeah, you have to realize what are you capable of and how much time are you going to have to put into it? And, and then is that worth it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause then it comes down to, well, sure. You know, I could take a college course on speaking French, but oh, at, that, sure. <laughs> at, at that point, you know, uh, now I'm working for, you know, 30 cents an hour. Um, exactly. So for short things, yeah, I would have no problem. My wife speaks French and I asked her just today a name for a book that I'm prepping and, uh, you know, is it this way or is it that way? No problem. I can do a word. I can do a phrase. But when you've got every page, you've got multiple references. Yeah, I just knew it was a bad idea. So that I, it sounds like great advice to me to uh, know what you can't do. Um, uh, what else? What else have you have you seen in the world of casting that uh, that you could say if somebody was, uh, you know, really wanting to keep a strong brand and, and keep a good name out there? What's the what are the most important things to do? Stay in contact. Checking in with casting directors is a great idea, but it's a it's a very fine line between checking in regularly and and being annoying. Yeah, I think a lot of us have a problem knowing where that line is. <laughs> yeah, and 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 very few people, I think, actually kind of hit it right on right on the mark. But I will say that the ones who did were always very personable. And I really liked that. There were a few that would take the time to get to know me a little bit, you know, just a little thing or two about me. And then when they would email me to check in and, you know, to say, let me know what they've been working on and what, what they would like to do and, the, their, and certainly their availability. If they dropped a little thing at the end, you know, and how are those cats or, <laughs> you know, have you gone hiking lately or, you know, whatever, it would just be like, oh, you know, it's just sort of like, it's such the world we work in with this, we, especially people who work from home studios, we don't ever see anybody, yeah. you know? So when you have those little personal touches, it, it, that, that those would stay with me. And while I stand by that, I always did my very best to find the right person for the job. Sometimes the right person was the person who just emailed me and asked me if I'd gone hiking recently, mm -hmm. you know? And so it was like, you know, it, it keeps you in people's thoughts if they feel like you've taken a personal now and that's a fine line too you know because if somebody asked me about you know something they weren't supposed to know about or something too personal that would right. be weird so again fine line but I think also some narrators will send out the mass emails you know like the newsletters mm -hmm. and I personally would glance over them and then file 
them away. Mm-hmm. But if I got an email that was, you know, hey, Jackie, this is what I've been doing. And I knew that it was written to me, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I always preferred those. Even if they were, you know, short and succinct and, you know, I have an opening in the middle of October and I just did a book with a Polish accent that I feel really strong about. Here's a clip. Mm. You know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I've, I've heard, um, you know, f- at the, at the two APACs that I've been to, uh, lots of different opinions. I know that the, the newsletter question has come up and uh gotten you know both sides of that some people Mm -hmm. oh yeah that's great other people nope don't like them at all don't ever send me anything uh a lot of people were kind of along the lines of what you just said yeah it's fine but if there's some some way that you can uh, have a more personal one-on-one interaction with me that's better uh so it's I, i do think that it's a difficult line for for some of us to navigate. Uh, and I, I like what you said about it's a fine line, even when you're, you know, being personal because, uh, you know, you don't want to cross over into potential stalker territory. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Especially again, when we, these are people we never see, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's like suddenly people are asking you things that you've only mentioned to your friends on Facebook. It gets a little weird. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to work with B-Audio, if they wanted to be on the B-Audio roster, what should they do? Just asking for a friend. They need to go to the website, which is www.baudio.com, and they will find a link. I believe it's somewhere towards the top of the page that um, says, do you want to work with us? And you click on that, and it'll take you to a page where there's a lot of different there's more links where you can find a link for if you want to be a proofer, because that's a fun job for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds and, like it. Uh, proofing and narrating and editing, the, our, our sound engineer people. And so there's a link for each of them. So just click on the submission on the narrator link, and then it's going to take you to a page that tells you everything that they, that they need and they want. And generally, it's that you send in two to three samples. And I know that we they at B Audio they like Flax, F L A C that mm-hmm. file extension, sure, and yeah. always give us twenty to thirty seconds room tone. Okay, and is there anything that maybe an insider could tell Ooh. us about what to include or what to say or what types of clips or any information at all that isn't on the website? I would suggest. Like I said earlier about n- uh, needing to know what narrators, what their backgrounds are, mm-hmm. let us know a little bit about that somewhere. You know, are you a librarian or have you been working in, you know, Shakespeare in theater for 30 years? You know, give mm-hmm. us a little bit of your outside life so that we can see how we can incorporate that. Okay. Into the- yeah, absolutely. And being, and also, with, you know, with the samples, I always recommend one fiction and one nonfiction. Okay. Um, so if you were going to send more than two samples, do you think there's any benefit to going one way or the other fiction, nonfiction? Fiction with dialogue that includes both male and female voices. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, that is a topic that comes up frequently in uh, some of the, the uh, listener areas that I, that I follow about um, complaints about men doing female voices and women doing male voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I'm sure subtle, that's something that subtle is, yeah, subtle is the way to go. Mm. Just, 
light. And I can say one of the people who I think handles it the best is Julia Whalen. So if you go listen to some of her books or some of her clips and see the way she handles those changes, I mean, she can handle these really fast conversations back and forth between a father and a daughter. And it's just seamless. That's great. Sounds like a great skill to have. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds like great advice. Thank you. I think it would be also beneficial to someone if they just listen to the way men and, you know, the way people speak. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Oh, sure. Yeah. Because not all men sound, not all men sound like that, you know? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, um, so getting back to what you're doing now. So what, what was the school that you um, took the teaching position in again? At Stephen F. Austin State University. And where is that located? It's in Nacogdoches, Texas. Nacogdoches. Yes. Tell me about Nacogdoches. How, how far are you from Nacogdoches? I'm in Nacogdoches. Oh, you are in uh, Nacogdoches. Yeah, I've been, I've, it's, it's one of the schools that I've been teaching part-time at for a little while. And it is in the east part of Texas. We're about, we're less than an hour from the Louisiana border. It is not at all the Texas I grew up in. You know, most of the time when you think of Texas, you think cowboy hats and horses and lots sure, of cactus yeah. and cotton fields. That's where I grew up. And this is the we we always say that we're behind the pine curtain. We're in the pine, <laughs> piney woods. We're like about maybe 30 minutes from the Davy Crockett National Forest. Oh, wow. It's are you, gorgeous. Are you at any elevation? No. We are hot and humid, just like Houston. We're about two hours north of the north, north most northern part of Houston. Okay. So, yeah. It's, it's a strange it's a strange world out here for a West Texas girl. <laughs> it's, it's just much more that even the culture here is far more Southern than it is Texan. They, they would probably all disagree with me, but that's been my, my experience. It's a little more genteel. There's, than- there's no problem with disagreements on stuff like that. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, that sounds great. It sounds like a, a good place, someplace that you really want to be. Yes. That's fantastic. That's great. All right. Well, uh, Jackie, this has been great. Um, I'm, if you are still in the audiobook world at all, and you want people to contact you, um, that would be great. I'm guessing that at this point, you're not really looking for any specific contact from narrators or people involved in production. Actually, I have very much would love to do some consulting. Oh, as great. a means of staying involved, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like I've got some talents that are, are going to go unused for a little, you know, mm-hmm. and what I would be very interested in working with people on um, I, some of the things that we've been talking about, like what should a cover letter look like? What should your website look like? What, what, how do you interact with casting directors? Sure. Yeah. That, you know, is, that, and, is, that is all good stuff for, for people to know. And a lot of times working with somebody, getting some consulting advice, even if it's, you know, a half an hour, an hour here or there, or, you know, over the course of a few weeks um, for different topics, that is something that uh, I think would benefit a whole lot of people who are in, you know, my position or similar to it. I think so too. I think it helps create sort of a sense of accountability. Yeah, that's great. So how can people contact you? They can contact me at Jackie Rosenfeld at gmail.com. 
All right. Let me uh, let me have you spell your name just so because I know there are variations on both of those names. Uh, no problem. <laughs> it's J A C K I E R O S E N F E L D dot com. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean at, uh, at, at, g- at gmail.com. Right. But my website is jackierosenfeld.com. So you okay. can you can go there and find me too. Okay. Well, that's great. I, I was unaware that that was something that you were uh, looking to do. And I think it's a great idea. I'm sure that there are people who are going to be hearing this, who are going to be interested in getting some information along those lines. Um, well, I would love to hear from anybody. That's great. That's great. All right. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for coming into the speakeasy. I really appreciate your time. I know that it's uh, it's been a busy time transitioning out, out of B and in, back into full-time teaching. So uh, thank you for coming in. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Jackie Rosenfeld for stopping in. Even though she's no longer the casting director at B-Audio, I heard a lot of important things to keep in mind when communicating with casting directors, and I hope you did too. And many thanks to the Audiobook Reviewer for sponsoring this episode of the Audiobook Speakeasy. Be sure to visit audiobookreviewer.com to check out their reviews, learn about the Audiobook Listener Awards, and find out how you can get your audiobook reviewed. You can find the audiobook Speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated and helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!